Father, as we reflect on your word, we thank you that you know all about us. You know what we're up against. You know what we're dealing with, even this day. Thank you, Lord, that you are encouraging us to get our eyes off ourself and to remember who you are, to remember that you are supreme and sovereign over all, that you're in control of all things, that nothing can thwart your will. So we pray, Father, that we might have eyes of faith to believe that you are the true and living God. We might find hope and encouragement for our souls and that Jesus Christ may once again be the one who points us to his abundant grace for those of us who need it as we reflect on your rule over our lives and your supreme purposes for us. And so, Lord, open our eyes to the things of your word this day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the joys of being a parent is reading good children's books. And one of my favorites from the years of reading books to our kids was a very simple book by Judith Viorst called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How many of you are familiar with this book? Oh, some of you are, but most of you are not. Okay. I won't read you the whole book, but it starts off like this. This little red-haired kid, he's like, looks like he's maybe seven years old, something like that. He goes, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink when the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his cereal box. But in my breakfast box, cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia, he says. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. And I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Skipping on ahead. We went, to the, we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose ones, white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But when the man said, we're all sold out, they made me buy plain old white ones. But I, they can't make me wear them, he says. And toward the end of the book, he says, <clears throat> when I went to bed, <clears throat> Nick took, the, took back the pillow he said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out. And I bit my tongue. And the cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. Anyway, the book is funny. And it's a little picture into the, the life of a small boy who thinks that everything is just rotten and he's been assigned all of the bad places in life. And I wonder how many times you and I suffer this difficulty in our thought life and our thinking, this nagging sense of doubt that sometimes can overtake us, a sense of disillusionment sometimes that we have these situations, we look at where we are right now, we get sometimes 
the thoughts of regret can, can sort of uh, bubble bup, bup up into our minds and the past events or a series of past events we believe have set us now onto a path in which that path is taking us to a place where we do not want to be where we are today. It leaves us thinking things like, if only. If only I had done better in school. If only I had received a promotion that I was promised years ago. If only I had taken that offer that was made to me some time ago. If only I had made better choices. If only my dad had lived longer. If only my parents had not divorced. If only I was smarter or prettier or taller, or more outgoing, or well, more well-off financially, and on and on and on and on it goes. Certainly all of us struggle at some point, do we not, with coming to grips with where we are in life. It is so easy to question God's place and our place in God's plan. And the people of God, I'm sure at times, assume that God had forgotten them, where they were, what they were facing, what they were up against. That's why I had uh, our brother Jason read for us from Isaiah 40, where he, the Lord summarizes what the people have been saying. Why are you saying, O oh my people, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Well, I'm convinced that one of the things that God is desiring to do in His people is to cause us to become more and more aware of the fact that He is in control of all things and that where He has assigned us and where He has us is where He wants us for the time being. And therefore, we can trust Him. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll turn again to Nehemiah. We're looking at chapter 11 of Nehemiah. And uh, in this text of Scripture, again, we're pointing out the fact that God is determined to renew the hearts of his people. It's a time in which they have perhaps begun to sort of try to come to grips with all the changes that are happening in their day. And God is wanting to help them trust him in any and every situation in life. God was teaching them to view their assigned places in life as part of his divine plan for their good and for his glory. And so I'd like to just start off reading in verses uh, chapter 11 of Nehemiah. We'll begin reading in verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, that's a bit of an obscure text of Scripture. When you first read it, you say, what in the world is he going to speak on today from that text? Well, here's what my first point is. Point number one is the place where God's people are assigned is not accidental. The place where God's people are assigned is not accidental. Again, the background in what we're reading here is that we understand the city of Jerusalem had a period of time, almost three I would say uh, three or four generations, 160 years at least, when the city was in ruins. People sort of took matters in their own hands. They lived all over the place. There was really no core place to live safely and securely. And so when the walls are rebuilt, when the gates have now been rehung in this wonderful 
renewal of the city, the citizens now have committed themselves to God and the leaders of the city are trying to say, listen, let's all gather here and let's repopulate this wonderful city of Jerusalem. The vast majority of the people, however, are living outside the walls. They are not living inside. And so they're trying to bring about this change of resettling people. Instead of the enclaves, instead of these little villages, we want to bring them into the city of Jerusalem. How would they... How would those who are responsible for the city find a number of volunteers and citizens who will come back and move into this walled city? And the way that they agreed to do it was to use what they call the drawing of names, as it were, names out of a hat, or to use what they call casting lots. Now, I've read up on this. that No one can tell you exactly what it was like. Some people think it was a number of, of sticks. One was longer than the others. You can't see them until you draw it out, or some people think it's a different kind of stone, some people think it's an item like a dice. Uh, in our culture, it's like flipping a coin. It is a, a process by which, without showing any favoritism to anyone, a decision is rendered. It doesn't give any kind of special treatment to anyone. It's just a way of saying, this is what's been decided. We cast lots. Again, it was an accepted Old Testament method that God ordained as part of what they should do. If you look back in chapter 10, Verse 34, they cast lots, it re we read, for the supply of wood among the priests. There was a, it was just a normal way of coming to decisions and trying to discern this is what we're going to do. You recall if you fast forward in the New Testament, even the Roman soldiers are there. They've got one garment. They've got four of them. They all want it. And so what do they do? They cast lots to see which one would receive Jesus' garment. Now, if you think about whether this seems like some just random kind of way of deciding things. Um, let me just remind you what the Word of God says about casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33, this is a very helpful insight. It may seem like a random decision, the rolling of a dice or the flipping of a coin. But we read in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. Its very decision is from the Lord. It's not just randomness. This is the way uh, God can make his will even known. And so the Jerusalem leaders there decided to use this equitable system to render which of these families are to come back and live in the city of Jerusalem. 10%, 1 in 10, would move back in based on this selection from the surrounding area to live back in Jerusalem. And God providentially, providentially places now some of these country folk, if you will, people who are used to living now out on their own, and now they're going to sort of join into this, quote, urban setting where there's lots of people and there's much more of a communal life among them. Now, this assignment is not by accident. By way of casting lots, some of these people were directed by God to resettle and to start their life over again in a new place among all these new neighbors. The challenge for these 10% was to accept this as the leading of God. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, first of all, let me, don't hear me saying that you should make all your decisions by casting lots. Okay, um, casting lots, the last time casting lots appeared in Scripture is when the uh, disciples, the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, if you will, gathered after Judas has committed suicide and they need to replace and find another 
apostle to find 12. And so they cast lots in order to render this decision among them. And that is the last time it's ever used. As a matter of fact, as the church was established and moving forward after the day of Pentecost, the leaders in churches were appointed by the apostles or they were selected by the local churches. There was no more casting of lots to figure all these things out. It would indicate, it seems, in the scripture, in the flow of things, that the Holy Spirit helps us and the Word of God in its final form enable us to make our own well-thought-through decisions using the discretion that the Holy Spirit gives us as we trust Him and move ahead. Now, further on, how does this deal with us? Well, the question comes, how willingly are we willing, how willing are we to consent to God's assignments that He selects for us? How many of us have recently grumbled about the lot, quote unquote, that God assigned to you, where he has placed you in your life? Do you welcome God-ordained changes in your life? How about the changes that God brings about in our church or in our families or at your job or even at your school? Can you, like Joseph, Come to the point where you say in your heart before God that you can accept the various twists and turns, the ways in which God has led you down the various path that you, winding path that you never thought you'd ever be on at this stage of the life, of your life. And yet he's done it in his wisdom that he has ordained for you. Has God perhaps taken you down a path in which your health has changed? It's not what it used to be. You're up against a very difficult situation in which you find yourself maybe with less mobility or with less capability? Has your job been somehow radically more complicated, made more complicated for you? No matter whether you're that 10% who are selected to move or you're the 90% who's still living where you have been for a long time, are we learning to be content where God has placed us? It's a process, isn't it? Seems like one day you can be content and the next 10 days later, you're very discontent. And I've given us in your notes there a quote from Charles Stanley. I'm thankful you didn't stay home and just listen to Charles Stanley today, which many people always tell me, oh, I always listen to Charles Stanley on TV. Um, Contentment is accepting God's sovereign control over all of life's circumstances. Contentment is accepting his control over all of the circumstances of your life. Boy, apart from God's grace, I don't know how any of us ever get there. But I believe that's what God was trying to teach his people here. So when you think about your calling, do you find yourself feeling very disappointed with what you end up having to do most of your week? The role that God has assigned you, maybe a role or a job that you say, well, this is not something I look forward to as I head into another week. And maybe the challenge is to trust God and his wisdom to grow where we've been planted. An interesting quote there by Martin Luther King Jr. in your notes. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, then sweep, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep the streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep those streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. In other words, thrive where God has planted you. 
There's a New Testament example I'd like to show you, if you will. Just uh, put your finger there in Nehemiah. We'll, we'll come back to it. But if you look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is a man who likes to be on the move. He was a person who was constantly moving on from one place to the next to the next. He was a person who had many plans, many dreams, many goals, many people to win to Christ and to disciple. And so he's a man on the move. And we, we pick up his story here in Philippians chapter 1 and come to find out as he's writing this, he's stuck. And the period of time he's stuck, they estimate to be approximately two years he was held under house arrest in Rome. And so now he's not able to do the things he was hoping to do. He's not able to visit the folks he was hoping to be able to visit. And so he says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, that means the fact that he is stuck and he is now bound to stay where he's staying there in Rome, doesn't have the freedom to move around anymore, they have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's wanting them to be assured that God is still accomplishing good things in the midst of his limitations. Verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What he begins to reflect on is and tries to help them understand is that by accepting the fact that this is where God has placed me, I'm beginning to see that he's at work even here. And therefore, I want you to not become so discouraged by the fact that I'm stuck here. I'm here assigned by God. Therefore, be encouraged. God is working even in what would be, what appear to be I've gotten stuck in a place that would never be viewed as good. That was Paul's ability to accept what God had ordained for him. And again, I say to ourselves, can I, by God's grace, reach that point where I trust God that he is sovereign and that he has me in a place that he's assigned me and therefore it's part of his plan for me. Well, point number two, uh, we first of all want to say that the place that God has his people is not accidental. But secondly, the position where God's people are assigned is not insignificant. It's not insignificant, the position that we're assigned. That's where we get into verse 2 of chapter 11. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And then he starts. And these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Jerusalem, each lived on his own property in their cities. So he lists a bunch of different people, the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, descendants of Solomon's servants, and on and on he goes. We'll show more about that in just a minute. Interesting detail here in verse 2, because he talks about those who were selected to live within the walls there, and some of the 90% who were not obligated to leave where they were living in the rural homesteads, they nonetheless chose to do so voluntarily. Nobody made them. Nobody forced them. Nobody twisted their arm or coerced them. But they were stirred by God to go and join with others and inhabit the city of God. They're not manipulated. Nobody mandated them to go. They felt the compelled to volunteer, willingly to give themselves to a greater sense of joining with others who are on this move and to make a strong and defensible Jerusalem. A walled city needed a core of committed people to maintain it and to upkeep it, contribute to it, and defend it. 
What follows then in chapter 11 is a list of all these various volunteers. Again, there are these long lists, right? You get a lot of names in this book. And I'd like to just notice a couple of the categories of the volunteers, categories of people who are serving, people who are doing some area of contribution that's making a huge benefit for all of them. And what's significant is in listing some of these, of course, it's not completely exhaustive in its list, but notice these various areas of ministry that were done for the glory of God. I have four categories of volunteers. Look at verse, the first one is verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. From the priests, we have Jediah and various names there <laughs> and his kinsmen, all their households. Um, and so you begin to understand that these people are um, offering their help in working at the temple. And that's what the priests did. They worked at the temple. And they volunteered in the house of worship. They're volunteering and supporting the work, offering their talents and their gifts. The second area to volunteer, verses 15 and 16, were the Levites. And we begin to read there that they have various responsibilities that are not in the temple. Verse 16, they were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. So they're handling, in a sense, the civil affairs, where they're adjudicating all kinds of disputes that were going on, perhaps among the people who live there, various matters that needed to be handled that's different from the temple worship. A third group were the unsung heroes, verse 17, very interesting verse, Mataniah, um, who was the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. Isn't that interesting? Here's a guy who was known to be a fellow who's leading a time of thanksgiving in prayer. That's where he devoted himself. Behind the scenes person, here's a godly person who's offering prayers on a regular basis, offering thanks to God. Don't ever think that there's not an important role for someone who behind the scenes is a pray, prayer warrior. And this church has known some over the years. And I think of one that I'll just allude to, I think many of you who have known her, Ruth Mers is that person who, in my knowledge, is a person who prayed earnestly and continually, who said, I pray for you every day. I think she really meant it. She doesn't just say that. A person who devotes themselves to prayer behind the scenes, not making a show of it. It's an incredible offer of themselves to serve in that way. And then there, verse, the fourth category of people, verse 22, were the musicians, the people who could sing, the people who could carry a tune, the people who could play an instrument. Now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Okay, and they're showing all the family connections from the sons of Asaph. That should sound familiar if you're familiar with the Psalms, who were the singers for the service of the house of God. I don't know about you, but I'm always very thankful for people who are musical and who offer their musical gifts and help practice in order to lead those of us who maybe aren't as musical for the glory of God. Now, each one of those areas of volunteering, each one of those areas of service, it is so valuable. Each area was important, and in each local church, like ours, there's really an army of volunteers and heroes whose names are never put on the front or the back of the bulletin. They don't get a lot of credit, but they are the people who play such a valuable and necessary role in the church, as well as a necessary and valuable role in our homes. 
and even in businesses. These are the people who do the real challenging day-to-day -day work, and therefore, because they do it, things move ahead, things work, things are functioning. I would imagine some of these people here in this long list of names, some of them probably did not receive that much attention in their day, but I assure you this, that God will recognize them fully one day. God will not overlook all of their unsung contributions and efforts. God keeps track of everything that's done for His sake and for the sake of His kingdom. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 which Paul had to speak to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were really big on certain people whose gifts and abilities were well known and very much uh, uh, appreciated and made a big deal over. And there were many people in that church who felt like they were left out. There are nobodies, nobody cares about us. And there's the certain people who are the very important people. And then there's the everybody else. And Paul had to remind them that they had a tendency to put all their favorites and somebody says, well, I'm loyal to this person, I'm loyal to that person, but these people don't, we don't care about them. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. So he did a different kind of ministry, but God was causing the growth. Now watch what he says, 1 Corinthians 3. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. What's he saying? There's a diversity among who's doing what, but God is going to what? He'll reward them according to their labor. And some of us who make voluntary sacrifices, we have not gained much notoriety, but make, most, make no mistake, God will not overlook your service. Hebrews 6.10, maybe you can take your Bible and find that verse. Hebrews 6.10. While you're turning there, just let me give you a good quote from Chuck Swindoll. He said this, Our final rewards will be determined on the basis of faithfulness, not public applause. Then on the basis of faithfulness. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God's not going to forget your work and labor. God will He will um, recompense you for all that you've willingly done for His sake and for the glory of God. That's a good thing to remember, my friends, because there's a lot of times nobody notices it. And those are sometimes the greatest places of service when no one is patting you on the back. But the Lord will reward us one day. And these people's names were listed here, and therefore we acknowledge that their role was important. I just have one other real quick point I want to make here in this text this morning, and that's really going to take us beyond all the long list of names. Again, I'm not going to take the time to read all the names, but feel free if you want to go through and look at them. Uh, even through chapter 12, as he continues on with further and for more and more names, again, reminding of what some of these people were involved in doing. But the third point is this. When we get to chapter 12, verse 46, 12, verse 46, there's a day in which they finally have a celebration. They've sort of repopulated the, the city to some extent. People have been reassigned there. And we won't, we won't take time to go into all about the celebration, but there's a sense of great acknowledgement of what God has done. If you look at verse 46, For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns and thanksgiving to all. 
thanksgiving to God, excuse me, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. He's saying they join together in verse, uh, also in verse 44, I'm sorry, verse 43, he talked about the fact they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. My point here is, is to reiterate the fact that the purpose for which God's people are assigned is not incidental. The purpose of why God has us where he has us is not something that is unimportant. But I reiterate again, the point of this book is to emphasize that God wanted his name and his glory, his agenda to be recognized again. And the rebuilt wall is not all about what this book is about. The purpose of the wall was to provide the people with some measure of defense, yes. So that what? So that the people of God could carry out the proper acknowledgement of God in the realm of their little village, their little city. And the important point here is the focal point of the book is on God. It's on giving glory to God where God has assigned us. And God is the reason for all the service. God and his glory are the goal of all that was accomplished in rebuilding this city. And the purpose of our devotion is not to make a name for ourselves. It's to make God's name great. And that's really the point of what's going on here among these people. That's why Peter reminded his fellow believers who were beginning to suffer as Christians there under the, the opposition of Rome who kept saying, who, where are your loyalties, you, you Christians? Can you say that Caesar is Lord? No, they keep saying Jesus is their Lord. And Peter calls him to what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that when unbelievers observe your good works, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, Jesus, the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus had his place of assigned glory. It was in heaven. He left that, came down, and assumed a position which God assigned to him and said, this is what I want for you to do. He took our place. He humbly surrendered to the assignment that the Father had given to him, obeying the Father and all that that required. And then in love, he assumed our place, taking upon himself our punishment, being raised to life after he dies upon that cross, conquering death, defeating the forces of evil through his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, he has shown us that there is grace and forgiveness and love shown toward us because Jesus is one who has made provision for us to be right with God and therefore to have a purpose. And therefore we can join with God and make much of God because our lives now have found grace in his presence. I want to just conclude today by thinking about plans that get reassigned and things that you think are going to happen don't really happen that way. It was on a Sunday, January the 6th, 1850. The 15-year-old young man who had purposed in his heart that he was going to visit church after church after church in his town until he could find some congregation in town where somebody would tell him how in the world he might find relief from the sense of condemnation he felt before a holy God knowing that he had broken God's laws. And so this 15-year-old young man by the name of Charles Spurgeon headed out to another church on the Lord's Day, and that day was very snowy, a terrible storm, sleet, snow, it was awful. 
He didn't go as far as he thought he would go. He turned down an alleyway, a small side street. It took him into a primitive Methodist church. And there he shows up. There's only a dozen people there. A small handful from the normal crowd. Just learn to like today. And there he is with the wrong church. And the pastor couldn't make it. And so they got somebody else who's willing to stand up. And he was going to bring some sort of message, which he did. So it's the wrong church. The weather was wrong that day with this wrong speaker. And here this man got up, an older gentleman, an unimpressive man who was probably a shoemaker, according to Spurgeon's recollections. He got behind the pulpit and he said this. Here's my text today, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And Spurgeon said when he heard that, the man kept repeating it because he didn't really have a whole lot else to say. And he would repeat it again and he'd make more emphasis on look to me, look to me. And he pointed his finger at Charles Spurgeon who was there all downcast. Obviously his, his appearance was one who was troubled in spirit troubled in his soul, did not understand what it was to know God and have a salvation in Christ. And he pointed that young man and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Look to God. Look to Christ. And live. And Spurgeon said, that was a good word. Highly unusual, but a good word. And it struck home in my heart. He said, look, look, look. Spurgeon said, I kept thinking I had to do 50 things. I had to do this, I had to do this, I had to do this. And the gentleman said, look, look to Christ. Have faith and trust in Him. And this is his reaction. This is what Spurgeon said. When the congregation sang the final song, they went out. And as Spurgeon walked back home through the snowy streets, he thought of the words of the psalmist that kept going through his heart. Wash me and I shall be as white as snow. And God flooded his heart with joy and with full assurance. And Spurgeon said this, I looked to Jesus and he looked on me. And we were one forever. That moment my joy surpassed all bounds. Just as my sorrow had before driven me into an extreme of grief. I was perfectly at rest in Christ, he said. I was satisfied with Christ, and my heart was glad, and I did not know that this grace was everlasting life until I began to read in the Scriptures and to know more fully the value of the jewel which God had given to me. And I think to myself, did he think he was on the wrong path that day? going down the wrong street, going into some church where he thought some obscure things were going on and the wrong people showing up and the normal preacher preacher wasn't there. And I say to you this day, wherever you are, look to God. Look to Christ. He is sovereign. He has made a way for us. He has made provision for that we who are his enemies can become his children by faith and therefore we can serve him. Our lives have purpose and meaning to serve the living and true God in wherever he has assigned us. And to trust him to use us by faith for his glory. And whatever he, call, call, whatever he puts your hand to, it could be there in your home, there at school, at work, wherever it is. 
May your prayer and may my prayer, Lord, teach me contentment where you've assigned me and to serve you where you've placed me. Let's pray. Father, it is a snowy and very bitter cold day, and many people are not able to join us today, but Lord, you've brought those of us here today for a purpose. You've assigned us, Lord, to be able to reflect on this passage of your word and to be reminded that you are not a God of accidents or coincidences, that Lord, you have placed us strategically where we are for a purpose. And I pray, Father, that you would bring all of us to, to the point where we are brought into full assurance of faith that you are aware of what you're doing. There's a reason for all things. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach all of us today a valuable, important lesson on contentment. You would help us, Lord, to surrender to your sovereign ways. Help us, Lord, to look to you today. Help us to look to you for salvation, to look to you for meaning and purpose in our life. Help us to look to you for contentment, not to be always longing to see you change till we can finally become joyful. Help us, Lord, to have joy where we are. Help us to see that there are things that we can do right where we are to serve you, to make a difference for your kingdom. And help us, Lord, to have the right motives, knowing that someday you will reward us. People may not recognize us now, but someday, Lord, you will. So help us, Father, to serve you faithfully, earnestly, and sincerely, and tirelessly. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.